You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. We're glad you're here. I want to invite you to grab your Bible, turn to the book of Acts in the New Testament, and get ready to study God's Word together in the series we call, We Are All Witnesses, Part 3. How are you doing? It's outstanding to see you today. Uh, I want to get started here really quickly. If you have a Bible, I want you to open it to Acts chapter 11, verses 19 to 30 is what we're going to study here in the next few minutes. We have been going through the book of Acts every uh, fall for the last few years, and we're going to continue on. We're picking up in Acts 11, and then we'll move through as much as we can in this fall, and then we'll see where we get to from there. Before we even get started, I need to tell you ahead of time, some of you, like if you're watching on a video or... You're seeing this. Some, about halfway through this sermon, some of you will end up looking at my pinky thinking, what in the world happened to his pinky? It looks like it's, you probably can't see that, it looks like it's a thumb now. Um, I was, uh, I was uh, putting the dishes away from the dishwasher, and I was on the phone, and I dropped one of the porcelain bowls onto the counter, and it it uh, broke and slashed my finger, so I got four stitches in here now, and so it, it does look like a thumb, and so if it looks like I've got something weird hanging out there the whole time, I have learned my lesson. I will not be doing the dishes any longer, <laughs> so I already told my wife, right? Sorry, honey, I can't. It's a dangerous thing for me. Acts 11, though, uh, verses 19 to 30. I am not a church planter. I've been told that by lots and lots of church planters. It's always enjoyable. I've spoken at lots of church planting conferences because I've been involved in church planting kind of from a distance, been on boards and other things. I'm always the guy that they invite in the room because I love church planting. I love the idea of a new church starting in a place where there's lots and lots of people who need to be reached with the gospel of Jesus. I, I just, I'm not the kind of person who can just you know, roll up to someone's house and start talking to them about things and invite them to something I'm a part of. I tend to be the person like, well, if you're interested, you probably want to go to somebody else's thing anyway, because I'm not, I just don't have that in me. But I love spending time with church planters. They are some of the most daring people in the Christian church. Some of them, in fact, are are very much my heroes. Um, This passage is about a church plant. One of the reasons I came to Harvest, actually, was because Harvest has a long history in church planting. Planted about 193 churches. And we've been partnering since with some different church plants in uh, the city of Chicago. And we intend to partner more with church plants all around the world to see that number grow, 193 to grow to thousands of church plants that we're involved in around the world. Um, This passage is about the first one of them. This is about uh, one of the greatest churches in the history of the Christian church, quite honestly. How did it begin? How did it get to eventually becoming the first missionary-sending church, deliberately missionary-sending church in the world? The church in Jerusalem is the first church, and they ended up sending people out inadvertently, right? As persecution comes, and they just sort of send people out who are running away from something. But in, in Antioch... 
which is the church that we're going to be talking about here, they actually were the ones who ended up sending Paul and Barnabas out. You and I would not be here today if it wasn't for the church in Syrian Antioch. So this passage is about how that church began, how it ended up growing, and how it ended up becoming a church that ended up doing that amazing thing in Acts 13. So from it, it's a really great place for us to learn what, a great, what it takes to make a great church. So there are three things that I want to point out in it about uh, how does God grow a healthy church full of transformed people. Three keys, in fact. I usually do this for numbers. Now I'm going to have to do this because that's really fat finger. Three keys. So here's the first of them. Great churches rely on the hand of the Lord. Great churches rely on the hand of the Lord. Uh, Let me show you what I mean. Acts 11, verse 19. Now, uh, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. What what are we talking about here? Uh, Well, if you go back to Acts chapter 7, there is this very famous speech that is given by a really faithful guy named Stephen. He stood up in front of the the people of, the collected people of the leadership of Israel at the time, and he started to give a sermon to them. His sermon was basically about uh, the history of Israel. Now, he gets to the end of his sermon, and something strikes the dude, so that he, <laughs> he starts laying into the people. In fact, he says to these, this group of people, you, you're a stiff-necked people. Always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're just, like, you're just like your fathers and their fathers who resisted the prophets, killed them, and ultimately you're responsible for the death of Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That's not usually the way you want to grow your church at the beginning because telling all the people that they're guilty of the murder of uh, God is probably, they're like, oh, well, that's, we're not like that. And they didn't like it. They picked up a bunch of stones and they decided to say that he was being blasphemous, of course, to accuse him of these things. And they started throwing stones at him. He's a guy, if you might remember, who stood in the middle of that stoning and said out loud, um, Lord, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Similar words to what Jesus said on the cross. Stephen was such a faithful guy that that's, he, 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 you know, he reeked of Jesus (laughs) even in his dying moment. And then, this was kind of the match that lit the fire of persecution in that whole area. Everybody had been kind of putting up with these Christians. All these Jewish people are like, you guys are talking about this Messiah you say is come and he's resurrected. We don't believe it. Keep quiet. They tried what they could to silence them without violence. But then the moment moment Stephen gets stoned, they decide that's it. The gloves are off. Kill them all. Now, not every Christian was at the stoning of Stephen. There's a lot of them who were there. So word began to spread very quickly. You can imagine if you were a Christian living just at your house and uh, somebody comes knocking at your door and there's somebody who was down there watching what happened with Stephen. They come to your door and they, they say, hurry, 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 you've got to get, get everything and get going. Well, where, what do we mean get going? Where are we going? Well, Stephen... He just, got, he just got stoned to death in the middle of the square, and now they're after all of us. 
Well, you say, I, I'm, they don't know that I'm a Christian. Yeah, but they're torturing people who are going to name names. And they know you. People you know are there. They're going to end up naming names. And so you've got like this very short window to get out of here. So get your stuff and go. And they did. So this word scattered is actually pretty legit. They took off. Now, some of them went up nearby to, to uh, Samaria. Others went to other more local places. But a number of them traveled, it says, to Cyprus, Phoenicia, and Antioch. So here's Jerusalem, where they are. Cyprus is this island out here. Phoenicia is this coastal region here. And Antioch is up here. Now listen, this journey is 300 miles I live in uh, Barrington, Barrington, and uh, from my house to St. Louis is 300 miles. So like if, I would think somebody who's traveling that distance would, is really trying to get away. Also, it's the same distance as from my house to Des Moines, Iowa, if you prefer Iowa to Missouri. There's a long way. That they, that they traveled. In fact, people traveled to Cyprus and they eventually traveled to Antioch because they're, they're just, they want to get, get away as far as they possibly can from this persecution. What's interesting about the city of Antioch, though, this place, is that it, it, it was filled with a Jewish population. There's about 50,000 Jewish people who lived there. And so the folks who are leaving, of course, are Jewish from Jerusalem. And so they will find a population of Jews who, you know, understand the world the way they do up in, up in Antioch. The city was about 500,000 people, and this is a really big city in those days. It was like the third largest city in the region, Alexandria, Rome, Antioch. So major, major city. It was a beautiful city, like <laughs> magnificent city. There are stories told about the main road in Antioch that it was... Uh, I don't know if you've ever been to the Champs-Élysées or uh, seen pictures of it. It's the big main street that goes in, in Rome, and at the end is the Arc de Triomphe. The Champs-Élysées is a very wide street, and the sidewalks, if you walk down it, are really, really wide, and that shops and everything along, the architecture is magnificent. I mean, it's a, it, you stroll down the Champs-Élysées on purpose because it's so beautiful. Well, in Antioch, they had their own Champs-Élysées, which was really, really, really wide street, and it had big, wide, you know, uh, sidewalks and all the stuff all, all along, and they had pillars or massive columns all the way down the street. People came from all over to look at the beauty of Antioch. It was beautiful in what you could see, but it was really, uh, quite honestly, dirty in the, its moral its morals. Uh, Antioch was well known as being one of the most violent and um, fractured cities around, where people were not on side with each other. It's because it was at a crossroads, a major crossroads uh, between um, the south and the north, the east and the west, and major roads crossed it, and there was the Orontes River that ran through it. And so it was a place that lots and lots of people stopped and they stayed because it was so beautiful. So you had people from all over the Roman world who'd come, and when they came from all over the Roman world, it's not like they would mix together. You remember, maybe when you remember in high school when they taught us about how uh, people came to the, immigrants came to the United States, Ellis Island, New York, 
As soon as they finished at Ellis Island, it's not like the Polish people ended up deciding, you know what, now that we're in the new world, we're going to start hanging out with the Italians. They didn't. Instead, what you had was an Italian Italian quarter, a Polish quarter, a Jewish quarter. You had all of these different areas, and they wouldn't mix with each other, especially if you were Jewish, because, you know, they're Gentiles. You're Jewish. You could be ceremonially unclean if you spend too much time with them. And so in the city of Antioch, they literally built walls between themselves. So to be in the Italian quarter or the Jewish quarter, whatever, would mean that you're you're in, a, you're in a walled-in section where you don't hang out with anyone else. It was a very divided community, and most of the time when you interacted with people from the other groups, it was not friendly. In fact, the Romans used to say when they, they were facing some uh, racial divisions in Rome, they said that the waters of the Orontes, that's the river that ran right by Antioch, the, 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 the waters of the Orontes have found their way to the Tiber. The Tiber ran right by Rome. So in other words, the pollution, the racial and social pollution of Antioch has made its way to Rome. It's well known for this kind of place. Which is why I find this this story so interesting. Those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, Speaking the word to no one except Jews. Of course they didn't speak to anyone except Jews. That's, that was understood. You know, speaking to a Gentile, you get ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. They're headed to Antioch, to the quarter where they're going to be around all the people that they, that they know. But there were some men of Cyprus. These are the folks who came from the island. So they went to the island and then up north. And men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also. The Hellenists are the Greek people there, the Gentiles. They didn't just, they didn't just talk to a bunch, of, a bunch of Jewish people. They heard probably about what happened with Cornelius. Remember the story about Peter and there's a sheet, he has a dream or vision and the sheet, sheet comes down and there's a bunch of animals and God says, take up and eat. And the Lord, he says, Lord, I'm not gonna eat anything that's unclean. And the Lord says, don't, don't call unclean what I say is clean. And immediately after this vision, this guy shows up at his door and says, hey, can you come and basically come and preach the gospel to these, these Greek people, these, these Gentiles up near Cornelius? He shows up, preaches the gospel. They experience the same filling of the Spirit that the Jews did. And so it was a signal that the gospel wasn't just going to Jews, it was going to Gentiles also. This word starts spreading all over the place but you have to understand, there's always just the early adopters, which is these guys. And this requires a huge move, right? Walled-in city. These folks go to the Jewish quarter, and they're like, you know what we should be doing is going and speaking to the Greeks. And they go, which is just risking their lives in many cases. I remember um, several years ago, uh, these, these dear old women at my university, uh, they, they didn't actually attend the university or anything. They came from a church that my, um, my fiancé at the time, Jeannie, um, we started, started attending. 
It's a little church in our town. It was further away from the campus than, than um, a lot of other churches, so not a lot of students went there. In fact, we found out when we got there, it's a church about 150 people. We found out when we got there, they hadn't had college students show up at their church for like decades. So we went. There was a pastor there who was just a delightful guy. And we got to know him a little bit, and we said, I'm going to go to your church, right? His name was George. He's about this tall. So we go to his church. We show up. It's just, they're so kind, right? They're coming over to you and greeting you. You're, you're the new person, right? There's a full of new people. Everyone's gray hair or no hair. So my friends, when they found out that we were going to this church, were like, is it, is it fun? And we just, you know, yeah, it's great. They have potlucks, which is a friend of mine named Joe, who we ended up naming potluck because he only came to church when there was a potluck. He was like, I'm in. So Joe started coming along and, Colin came along, and Jason came. We had a whole bunch of people. So we had like this little section in the church of all these students from, from college. College students, and, and everyone else is like 60 to 80. And they, man, they loved us so much. They started adding potlucks so we would come more. <laughs> My friends would come more often. We'll have another potluck next week. You want to come? You're dangling food in front of college students. College ministry is really easy. It really is. You want pancakes? Oh, I'll come, right? Anyway, one of the things they did at this church is when you went along to the, when, when you went along to the church is that they would send their visitation committee to your home. Now, that normally meant the people who came to their church, which are very few new people who come to the church, they would, they would always go and live in some nice area in Bellingham. There's a nice little area in the town that we lived in. And nobody ever at the university, and so when this, this couple, this, these three older women, they were part of the visitation committee, we showed up at the church. They decided it was time for them to come and visit us at the college campus. Now, I'm just going to tell you, my dorm is not a safe place for, like, it was not a safe place for, like, older, uh, older seniors. It, like, you, you would hear a lot of things and see a lot of things that were not, you know, great. But these dear three women knocked on our door one day. I was sitting inside with my roommate and a bunch of other guys playing, I can't remember what dumb video game we were playing, but half the guys were half-dressed because, you know, why not? And they knock at the door, and I open the door, and there's these three like 70-year-old women with their little skirts on and they've dressed all up and they're holding something in their hand and some pamphlets. I was like, can I help you? They said, we're from Northwest Baptist. We're just here to welcome you to our church. Oh, can we come in? Sure. (laughs) These three women come in and they're sitting on all these chairs all around us kind of on the edge, because, you know, who knows what's on that chair or that bed, you know? They're sitting squeezed in with all of us. You know, they brought some baking, (laughs) and they're talking to us. And after they left, honestly, I remember standing there watching them go down the hallway to get in the elevator and go down, and I, I just thought to myself, what courage, right? I mean, how many 70 year old? How many 70-year-old uh, ladies are listening to me right now and thinking to themselves, you know what I want to do? I want to go hang out at Northwestern today at one of the dorms. But massive courage to cross that boundary. That's, a, that's precisely what these people did. 
so different from them, right? The Gentile world was so different, and yet here they are, and they're like, you know what? We're going to go hang out with the Gentiles. We're going to go proclaim the gospel to to these people. Massive courage. So I preached the Lord Jesus to them, and the hand of the Lord was with them. And the result of the hand of the Lord being with them, a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Do you know that language of hand of the Lord? The hand of the Lord is his powerful ability, right? When we do something with our hand, especially if you want to discipline your kids today, fathers, you know what it's like. You're driving in the car, they're screaming like crazy in the back, and, and you slow down hard so that they know you're angry, and then you take your right hand and you do this. Right? Don't you dare. And the kids are like, oh my goodness. Because the hand of dad is mighty. Well, the hand of the Lord is mighty. This is what the hand of the Lord does. It accomplishes his will. And so when the hand of the Lord moves, what he wants done gets done. Because he's sovereign like that. So these, these folks, they preach the gospel, and I'm telling you that I don't care how courageous you are in your gospel proclamation or outreach in your church, I don't care how noble and creative you are, if the hand of the Lord is not with you, forget it. Man, I'll, I'll extend that to your life. I don't care what your plans are, what your scheming is, what designs you have, or what scheduling you have for the next, you know, three years? What's your five-year plan? I don't care what you say on that. Go for it. Fascinating to read it. But if the hand of the Lord is not in it, nothing's going to happen. It's a courage to reach out to the Gentiles. But all the courage in the world won't change anything unless it's accompanied by the hand of the Lord. I've been a pastor long enough to have seen so many strategies employed in the local church in order to get the mission of God done. So many, so many plans. I've been to conferences where they're like, guys, this is the new thing. And if you do this new thing, then all the people will come. Do you guys ever go to Ikea, right? Um, I don't like Ikea. It's not because the furniture's not great or whatever. I don't, I don't like Ikea because I have to build it. And I stink at building stuff completely. I don't, under, don't understand. I especially don't understand instructions that don't have words. And so when you sit down and you try to do the Ikea, it's just a box with some hollow-looking idiot. And he keeps, you know, building things. And here's his hand and putting this. I don't, I don't know. Sometimes my experience in the Christian church has been that, you know, building a disciple or reaching the lost or success in ministry or the growth of your church is basically following the IKEA guidelines. If you do number one, followed by two, followed by three, followed by four, out comes the Korg dresser. And then I've seen guys go, step one, really gifted builders. Now, not like me, people who can actually read the instructions and follow them to a T. Step one, step two, step three, step four, no clorg. 
People aren't reached, they're not coming to the church, they don't know what's going on. You need the hand of the Lord. In all of your life, in everything that you plan to do, and you schedule and you figure out, without the hand of the Lord, without you pleading for the hand of the Lord to move, you can plan all you want, it's not going to happen. A friend of mine in seminary actually ended up planting a church in, in uh, Australia, the Sunshine Coast of Australia, so Queensland has the main city Brisbane, and north of it is the Sunshine Coast. It's a town, one of my favorite town names in the whole world is Malulaba. It's up there. Also, lots of snakes. So if you're thinking about going, tons of snakes. But Malulaba, very few people believe the gospel there. Very few. So he was an Australian guy. He went to seminary. Uh, he took all the classes from all the wise uh, church planting gurus. He did all the things that you're supposed to do. He even wrote his senior, uh, his master's thesis about church planting north of Brisbane. (laughs) Like he literally wrote the book about it. Here's the order, here's the way you do it, here's how many pamphlets you need to send out, here's the percentage of people that will come to your first gathering if you send out this many pamphlets. So he goes there with his family, moves in, doesn't know anyone in the area, and he starts with what we call a parachute church plant. He starts just on Doing the stuff, you know, sending out the mailers, knocking on the doors, uh, spending time with the, poli- the local police, doing, getting to know the community and marketing like crazy. We're going to have a massive launch party, he said, for this brand new church that is, you know, going to be attractive to you and re- relatable and all the things that you hated about church before. This is not going to be like, like he did all the stuff. Launch day comes, they had, man, they had put in the papers and they had the big signs out front and uh, they were meeting in a local school and they had the guys, you know, the the big tall floppy guys in the wind, I don't know what they're called, neither do you, right? Floppy wind guys. They were out, you could not miss this church plan. 10 o'clock Sunday morning rolls around, he walks out. Five people. Uh, Three of them were his family. One of them actually just walked in because he saw the floppy guys out front and was like, cool, sale. Remember he told me when, he told me that after the service, I mean, he preached to them. He did the things they were gonna do. And he told me that after the service, his family, which was most of the congregation, went home. He left them in the other room, went and sat down on his bed, and he cried. He'd spent so much time planning this event, figuring out what was going to happen. It's it's going to happen. I know all the rules. I know the way it's supposed to happen. His wife came in. A number of minutes later, she sat down next to next to him, and he said, I don't understand what happened. I don't, I don't get it. I, like, we did everything. And after she let the silence kind of linger, she said, well, maybe it's time we ask God. 
he told me, Jeff, I, I got to tell you that in all the planning and stuff, I know that I believe that the Lord was in it. I do. And I remember praying occasionally that the Lord would bless it, but I don't, I really don't think I included him that much. There's a church there now, really thriving church. Uh, things turned around very much, but the point is really clear, isn't it? I mean, like, if you have been stuck in a particular place in your life, and you've been scheming and trying to figure out how it is that you can make this relationship better or how it is that you can make this job situation and you can get it. Can you network enough and can I figure out exactly my future plans and you got it all nailed down. That's awesome, great. But without the hand of the Lord, it's nothing. Or to put it in the way the proverb says it, the horse is made ready for the day of battle. Guys, this is what we do every day. We get our horse ready for the day of battle. Put that saddle on and we're going to go and take, take the world. But the victory, it, it belongs to the Lord. So great churches, great disciples, rely on the hand of the Lord. Second, great churches grow through strong exhortation and teaching. So um, back to our passage the report of all this, and by this, uh, I mean uh, these people coming to faith in Christ because they crossed these social and religious boundaries and they started proclaiming to them, even though there was a walled-in city, um, the report of it came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, the original church, Mama Church, and they sent Barnabas <laughs> to Antioch. When he came, he saw the grace of God um, and he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. This is an amazing dude. <laughs> man, Barnabas is, a, this, this church in Jerusalem was feeling like, look, we have kind of ownership over all the other churches. A lot of people going around and teaching things that were foreign to what the church actually believed. And so we have a responsibility to make sure that all these other folks, you know, they actually believe what's true about God. And so when these new churches would start, they would end up saying, okay, we need to send someone there to make sure that what they're being taught and what they're doing is exactly right, and also to kind of welcome them in. So what they needed was somebody who was kind of a, had a Greek background, or maybe lived around Greek people, and they needed somebody who had a really good discernment, but also somebody who was really going to look and see what was good in people, right? So that they, they would look for, you know, little roots or little, little uh, pieces of, of, of flourishing grass. And Barnabas is this guy. Let me show you a little bit about this guy, uh, Barnabas. He, I mean, man, you should get you a little Barnabas in your life. Uh, back in Acts chapter 4, uh, this is what it says. There was not a needy person among them, among the early church in Jerusalem. For as many as were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' Feet. That's a remarkable thing, right? Can you imagine somebody in our church right now saying, oh, there's some group of people over here in our church that don't, that, that don't have as much money and they're in great need for whatever it is they're in great need for and I have an extra piece of property in Wisconsin. I'm selling the property, giving the money to the church so it can be distributed to the needy. A person who did that, we would say, whoo, they love Jesus. 
Thus Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, you know, how'd you like to get that nickname? What, what, what must you do to get the nickname son of encouragement? Well, sell your field. A Levite, a native of Cyprus, remember the island? He sold a field that belonged to him and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas is a guy who's like, I don't care about my stuff. I just want everybody to feel welcomed and flourishing in the community. Later on in Acts chapter 9, uh, 26, when he had come to Jerusalem, here he being the apostle Paul, he attempted to join the disciples. <laughs> What's going on behind this is Paul comes to faith in Jesus on Damascus Road. You remember uh, God says to him, hey, why are you persecuting? Or Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? And Paul's like, who's, who's talking? And Jesus is like, it's me. You're persecuting me. And he falls off his horse, scales over his eyes. God goes in through an angel, says to one of the other guys around, Ananias, hey, Ananias, I need you to go and I need you to talk to Paul. And Ananias is like, you mean Paul, the guy who's trying to kill everyone? Yeah, that guy. Ananias is like, all right, I'm busy like this afternoon. Uh, I'm not sure I want to die. I go, come on, go over there and do it. And he goes and he meets with Paul and everything's cool. But not everyone's going to accept Paul because if there's somebody, you know, with the Stasi or, you know, the, the government who is trying to seek and hunt out Christians so that they can kill them, if somebody is doing that around your community and all of a sudden a guy who has a background with that group comes to you and says, hey, I'd really like to come and meet with you guys, what would you do? Sure, come on in. We're meeting over here. No, underground Christians in China aren't inviting the CCP in. They're not like, hey, you know what? Come over and see it. Even if the CCP guy says, I'm, I'm totally gonna, I'm, I believe. So he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him. <laughs> yeah. They didn't believe he was a disciple. He's faking it. I know he's faking it. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. <laughs> okay, Barney. <laughs> okay, everybody else is shunning away. We can't trust him. Barnabas is like, okay. Hey, Paul, come on over. I'll show you where we meet. And he, he comes in with Paul and everyone's like, ah! But Barnabas says, hey, look, um, he declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who, who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Barnabas is a welcomer. He, he's a guy who is just really happy to include people. And so he's the perfect guy to send to Antioch. He sent Barnabas to Antioch, and when he came, he saw the grace of God. He was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Exhorted them to remain faithful with steadfast purpose. This little phrase here, steadfast purpose, means with full heart. Full commitment. Deep, abiding, focused commitment. Um, 
I want you to imagine for a minute that you have uh, a friend who you've been praying for to come to faith in Christ, and they, they end up coming to faith in Christ. Maybe they went to an alpha group. Maybe they went to a conference where there was an invitation for people to believe upon the Lord Jesus. Maybe it was just in a conversation that they were having with you, or they've been coming to church with you, and that one day they said, you know what? I believe this stuff. And I've told Jesus that he can have me because I need him. So they've, they've done this and you, you hear about it and then you come to them and the first time they see you, you're like, oh, so great. And you hug them and you think it's ma- magnificent that this is the case. Um, what do you say next? Have you seen the, seen the baptisms before? You know, usually when baptisms happen, people have massive parties afterwards. Woo! You're saved. You belong to the family of God. This is magnificent. Big hugs. What do you say next? Well, here's what Barnabas said. He met a bunch of people. He, here's what he did. He was glad. He saw the grace of God in, in the salvation, and he was glad, right? Woo! This is fantastic. He has his barbecue, and then he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Uh, that's amazing. It, it's, it's amazing uh, because... See, there's real faith and there's fake faith. I feel like a lot of people in this particular society in the United States need to hear this very clearly. There is real faith and there's fake faith. In fact, in the book of James, it says that the demons have faith. But it's it's not real. It doesn't submit to the authority of Jesus. So there's real faith and then there's fake faith. And the concern that a guy like Barnabas has is that even though there's a bunch of people who have been caught up, in, swept up into the praying to receive Jesus and they are committed at this moment for, to Jesus, it is only real faith if it continues. In fact, that's a mark of genuine faith is the continuing nature of it. If it doesn't continue, it wasn't real. I've been watching this uh, TV show about divers who go way down deep into the, like how far down can you go into the depths? (laughs) And um, they wear a Rolex, a lot of them that is the best watch for deep sea diving. It's actually called, I wrote down the name of it, the Rolex Deep Sea Challenge Sea Dweller. It's water resistant up to 11,000 meters. Guys, that's, this, that's the height. If you flipped Mount Everest down, that's how deep it'll go. I've also been to places in Mexico and other countries that sell Rolexes off the side of the street. You know that, right? Um, I've actually probably seen at one point or another a Rolex deep sea diver watch. You ever have a friend who's done that? You know, they come back and they've got their Rolex on their wrist, you know? 
and they're like, no, no, it's the same thing, dude. I'm just, they charge for the name, okay? So this, this is like four bucks, but they charge for the name. Look completely alike. Now, you in your sense, you're like, nah, it's not real. No, it's real. It's the same thing. All right, look, let's go and get a real one. Okay, this is real, but we go get a real one, you get the fake one. How are you going to test the truthfulness of the real one versus the fake one? You're going to throw it in the ocean. That's what you're going to do, right? You're going to, whoa, then you're going to follow it down and you're going to see which one, after like five meters, decides to implode. That's the Rolex. Because the nature of the Rolex deep sea diver is that it doesn't break at certain depths. that's, That's what's part of it. Real faith will not crush in on itself when the pressure comes. It perseveres through the pressure and keeps going. It's the genuine article proven by that fact. So when Barnabas shows up here, he's concerned. He's concerned that, look, a bunch of new Christians, a new people, listen, you got to keep going. The race has just begun, guys. You know what you do at the beginning of a race? Woo! You know, they run by and they're like, yeah, this is awesome. What do you say next? You're like, good job. Let's go get some hot dogs. No, you're like, keep going. Because you know there's 26 miles in front of them. And the goal is to finish the, the race. I get concerned for people, actually, like I said, in, in the United States, the Christians in America, who somehow think that the faith that they have is just some verbal assent. I get concerned for people who think that it doesn't require steadfast purpose for them. Because it does. So how, how are you going to get this steadfast purpose? How are you going to remain faithful to the Lord in the long haul? What do you need to do this? Well, actually, the answer is here. A great many people turn to the Lord. Um, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. He didn't know where he was. He was going to go and find out. You know where Saul is? Do you know where Saul is? He has to look around in Tarsus, which is a pretty long journey. It's about eight days' journey from where he was. So he goes and he finds Paul and he brings him back. And he brings Paul back because he's like, you know what these people need in order to become, you know, have steadfast purpose and continue in the faith? They need someone who can teach them. And I, Barnabas, can do it, but I need help with other guys who can actually teach them. And that's when Saul, he found him and he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and they taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Uh, Little Christs. Uh, There was a guy named Herod in those days. He was a king. And the Herodians were people who copied his every move. Trumpians copy everything Trump does. Bidenians copy... He's your guy. You model your life after him. They were so effective in their teaching with these people that they ended up getting a nickname. Ah, there goes one of those Christians. We know what they're like. How did it happen? Well, through faithful teaching and proclamation. 
of the word. Look, faithfulness to the Lord and fully devoted hearts happen through strong exhortation and teaching. It's the only way it happens. A number of years ago, I, um, was, I went to the, to the church where the man who initially mentored me uh, was still pastoring. I've told you before, if you've been around, that uh, a guy named Ken Hutcherson, a very large black man, uh, discipled me. Uh, I remember the first day I walked into his youth group. wasn't really a wasn't really a Christian. <laughs> I walked into his youth group, and the first thing he said to me, this enormous black guy, he looks at me and he says, "Are you going to Teen Jamboree?" And I went, "I will go wherever you say." <laughs> I didn't know what that was, but he invited me, and I I went. After we got back, he said, "You need to come to my house every Monday night so you can learn about Jesus." And I was like, "Again, sir." I'm here for you. <laughs> Just don't kill me. So I, every Monday night, I had a discipleship group for four, four years. Got a youth group on Wednesdays, church on Sundays, discipleship group Monday night. And I would sit together with a group of a bunch of high school kids who were just like me, and we would learn about Jesus. Four straight years. Went off to college, you know, seminary. Ended up being in churches around the world and ultimately back in Canada, and I go to his church in Seattle. After I don't know how many years, I walk in the front door, and Hutch is standing there, and he sees me, and he's like, oh. and I was like, oh, you remember me, you know? He was like, Jeff, how's it going? So he asked me what I was doing, and I told him about what had happened, you know, over the last number of years, and that I was a pastor of this church in Canada that was really being effective in its region and stuff. And I even said to him, you know, Hutch, none of this would have happened without you. So he paused, froze a little bit, and he said, it's great to see you, hug me. We went and sat down. He gets in front of the congregation, and he starts in on his little spiel, and then about halfway through, he's like, you know what, I, I just got to stop. Jeff, can you stand up? And I stood up in front of all of these people, and he said, this, this right here, folks, this is the fruit of your labor. And then he told everybody what happened, where I'd gone, what I'd done. I was driving home with my wife, or driving back to where we were staying with my wife and my, my family, and I, I said out loud, you know, I would never be the committed follower of Jesus I am today if it weren't for him and his teaching. Like, it was the foundation upon which everything else was built. Now, I don't agree with 100% of what he, what he taught me, but even in those places, I was thankfully taught it to me so it would be piqued my interest for later. Guys, I do not know how it is that 30 years from now, you're still going to be walking with Jesus if you're not committing now to build your faith through teaching. I don't know. I want to follow Jesus till the day I die. Listen, the faith you have on the day you die is the faith that you're building now. It doesn't just happen. So is it building? Like, or, or you just dip your toes in the water when it comes to church and Jesus and that sort of thing. I just show for a little bit here and there, you know. Take it off my to-do list. I've done church this week. God must be happy with me. Guys, I'm telling you, I am telling you, that is fake. People grow and churches grow through strong exhortation and teaching. Here's the last one. Great churches share even when it's hard. This is not 
very long, but it's absolutely phenomenal, okay? So I'm gonna show you here. 11, Acts 11, 27. This is the last part of it. Now in those days, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem. I mean, things are going great with Barnabas and Paul teaching the people, lots of people coming to faith and growing so everyone knows that they're Christians. They have a nickname now, well-known around the, the, the region. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit, he's a prophet, and he stood by the Spirit. He heard word from the Lord that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. This is basically Luke saying, he, I'm not lying to you. You can check your history books. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Ju- Judea. They're going to give him money. And they did so, sending it by the elder, uh, to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and, and Saul. You think, oh, isn't that lovely that this church did this so nice thing for these other things? Churches should do, be nice to each other. Okay, but this is a crazy move. <laughs> it's crazy. Let me tell you why. Okay, so here's the relationship between the Jewish population and much of the Gentile population in Antioch, Jerusalem, Cyprus, that whole region during this time. There's an emperor. His name was Caligula. He was the emperor of Rome, and he loved him some Caligula. He decided that he wanted everyone to worship him as a god, and he even told the Jews that I need you to put my face, a picture of me, in your temple in the Holy of Holies. If you don't, we're going to get you, and we're going to kill everyone in the region. Now, if you're a Greek person in that region, you're saying, come on, Jews, just do it. We're going to die if you don't do it. And the Jews are like, ah, no, that's not, nope, mm -mm, not going to happen. Don't you see? This is good. You get so angry as a Greek, you start being violent with them. You need to do this. We'll, We'll take over the temple and we'll put it up. So massive fighting going on in Jerusalem at the time. And it spread all the way through the region. And in Antioch, this walled city, city with walls between people groups who already don't like each other, it gave an excuse for all the people to start attacking the Jews. And the Jews in Jerusalem heard about the attacking going on in Antioch and sent 30,000 troops north to fight a war against the Greeks. Guys, this, what he just wrote, what they just did, giving all this money away, happened in the middle of the most racial strife that they had seen in centuries. In the middle of these, this fight between Jews and Gentiles, the church of Jesus Christ, filled with Gentiles, decided to sacrificially give to a completely Jewish church in Jerusalem from where the army fighting them came from. So, why would you do that? Like everybody else is fighting. Everybody else is all having, I mean, the whole world is going crazy. All the politics are, we hate you, we hate you, we hate you. Everything in the world is going wrong, but these guys go, where they were zigging, they zagged. Why, why did they do that? And I'm telling, listen, I'm telling you that the gospel completely changed their worldview. They weren't enemies, but brothers and sisters in Christ. They were fellow citizens 
of the kingdom of God. They weren't enemies any longer. The whole world said, you should be enemies. The kingdoms of this age said, no, hold your flag according to your nationality. Be like this, fight for your rights. And the Christians were like, but that's what we were. We're not that now. We are brothers and sisters with the very people you're calling us to fight. We are fellow citizens in the eternal kingdom of God with the people you're calling us to wage war with. We're not doing it. We're not. In fact, we're going to show brotherly love and affection for them because their minds were so overwhelmed with the grace of God and what Jesus had done. Do you know the gospel is the only thing in the world that can solve racial issues because everyone, everyone is the same under sin, all equally condemned, and everyone is the same under Christ, all equally brought up. It doesn't matter where you're from, what you look like, anything. It matters what Jesus did. That's it. So, so this message, this message, when it starts to bleed through your life and everything like that, all of a sudden the racial divisions that are so common in our social divisions, so common in our society and culture, they go away. They're your brother and sister. The gospel gets inside and it does something magnificent. You know, I'll finish with this. There, you know, math teachers talk about the epiphany that happens that they teach for. I teach for the epiphany. I've heard math teachers say that before. It's usually when the guy in third row who doesn't like math at all and hates it, all of a sudden gets the concept that's been taught for the last I don't know how long, and he goes, oh, I get it. And then all of a sudden, it just opens the door for the math to make sense from there on forward. I long... I long for this church and for Christians in the United States. I, I long for the day where the gospel epiphany hits us that we say, oh, we're part of a new kingdom? That changes everything. Is it changing everything? You were once darkness, now you're light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Father, I'm thankful for my friends. I'm thankful for the opportunity we have to study the word of God together, and I pray, Lord, that you would bless them richly. Help us, Father, to see ourselves the way you define us. Not the way the world defines us, Father, but the way that you define us. We're thankful, Lord, that you've called us from darkness to your wonderful light. Help us to live like it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. For more information and how to get connected to one of our campuses, go to harvestbible.org.